Hi, everyone. So my guest today is Professor Kate O'Neill. Uh, Kate is a professor in global environmental governance and global waste politics at the Department of Environmental Science, Policy and Management at the University of California in Berkeley. Kate has a PhD in political science from Columbia University. She has a postdoctor. She was a postdoctor fellow at Harvard University Kennedy School of Government. Uh, Kate has been working on this issue for a very long time, her entire academic career. She published three books. One is uh, in 2000, a book on, on waste trading among rich nations, building a new theory of environmental regulation, a book in 2009 called The Environment and International Relations, and a 2019 book called Waste. Uh, this last book is the one I'm going to focus on a bit more today. I've read parts of the book before the interview, I've read parts before, but mostly the book is trying to address the issue of, of, of waste as, as a globalized resource, uh, highlighting risks and, and governance challenges facing these issues. It includes cases from different countries, different cases, different issues around e-waste, around plastic, around you know, scrap trade. Uh, it focuses on labor and workers within that economy and also discusses issues around global circular economy and about campaigns around addressing addressing waste issues. I'm going to start by reading her final thoughts on the book, uh, which is the final two paragraphs from the conclusion section. Uh, so wastes are universal and deeply personal. Throughout this book are examples of how wastes and the study of wastes provide lenses into broader processes and politics. Such examples include relationships between society and government, from corporate sector change and growth to street politics and civil rights activism. Wastes are understudied as a lens into broader social and political issues and conflict. The field of this discard studies is built in part with this mission to unpack the significance of dirt and disorder and situate waste within broader social worlds. As I, um, this book is not centered on what individuals, especially concerned consumers in northern countries, can do about their own waste and recycling ch choices and behaviors. However, by way, and by way of conclusions, individuals can take responsibility as citizens just as much, if not more so, than as consumers and waste producers. This book suggests several options for doing this. One is to check what our local governments are doing and how they need prodding or support in building adequate local waste management programs, especially in the light of global shifts. Another is to lobby state governments against preemptive measures that forbid local restrictions on single-use plastic. Yet another is to support try to repair organizations and vote, if that is one of the options, to allow for electronic devices to be repaired. At the global level, one option is supporting waste pickers associations and their goals and understanding the political impact as well as the environmental ones of the distancing of trash. Or find a way to work and support waste management measures at the global level. This not only helps address this particular crisis, but is becoming apparent that waste management, recycling and prevention policies are significant tools in the fight against climate change. These ideas are far from exhaustive. In the end, there are many ways to address the global waste crisis. Understanding the opportunities, the risks, and the governance challenges of this global resource frontier provides critical context for the global community to move forward. So I'm, what I'm going to try and do is to waste is one of these complex issues that, as you could see, as you would see in the, in the interview, bring so many different elements together. So I'm going to try and map out in the interview with Kate, try to understand 
uh, this issue a bit more, try to understand the different elements, debate, and also unpack some of these concepts that, that I just read part in the introduction. Uh, and um, yeah, so let's go to discuss with Kate. Okay, hi Kate. Hi Shamal, it's nice hey. to meet you. Nice meeting you, thanks for doing this. Uh, how are you, how have you been? Ah, pretty good, just uh, coping with the summer that is sort of post-pandemic, but still trying to figure out what's going to be online or not online, and um, working my way into a new administrative position where I will be one of the people deciding that in the future. So that's kind of deciding if it's going to be online or not. Yeah, yeah. Whether <laughs> the Berkeley campus is going to go remote or whether it's going to stay in person and how that's going to work. So is there a chance going to be remote, like for? Yeah, I think so. Um, at the moment, it's all in person apart from classes 200 and above. And uh, I think that decision was made before the Delta variant really took off. And uh, hopefully there's some consideration of backup plans. They just tell us, oh, we're going to go remote. The other thing is that the last four or five fall semesters in Northern California, we've been shut down because of wildfire smoke. Mm -hmm. So that option of going remote is always there. So we may have to pivot. I'm teaching online because my class is 225 people, but um, for colleagues, it's going to be it's going to be a bit of a pain to go back right back. If they have and to. last year was remote, or did you do any face to face teaching? Uh, no face to face. The whole year was remote. That was the same, pretty much the same for us. Yeah. Yeah, it was I found it difficult to be honest. I'm not sure. I prefer face to face personally. Is your preference for online or face to face? Oh, face to face. But um, it's funny because I think I found some things working yeah. for me better online. I could do with my big class. I had an exercise where I split the class. I just into groups of twenty. Also, there wasn't a group exercise, but I gave them a special topic and questions and readings. And the idea was that they would teach it to the class. And that was much easier to do on Zoom because I could just put all 20, I would split them into groups of 10, half and half. And they'd just be in front of the class in a Zoom. We could switch them over really easily. There was no shuffling around. And I could say each and every one of their names because I could see their names. Yeah, yeah. And that was like, that was like a huge deal in terms of feeling more connected to that class of 200 people smaller classes are more problematic but uh i don't know i'm not as i'm not as opposed to remote teaching as many people and i am teaching this asynchronous class i pre-recorded the lectures which has given me freed up time for me to be more creative and in interacting with the students and um, gives them a chance to be more flexible in how they take the class. I mean, I, there's some and some students hate this, some love it. Uh, summer teaching is a bit different because we have more long distance people anyway. So, yeah, it's it's a brave new world. I don't think I'll go back to like these big class exercises. Just need to work better online. Yeah, I think I found some benefits for online, but I struggled with getting my own energy into it. Like I'm mm -hmm. kind of like like to get a bit into the topic, you get a bit of energy in the, almost like the performance of teaching in front of a big, yeah. uh, that I struggled to kind of get. It's when true. I went more, it's yeah. true. 
Okay, so um, I just thought, so I've been, I've been reading your work for the last few days just to kind of prepare a bit. And it's one of these topics that I always found super fascinating, but quite difficult to like point at, you know, because it's such a huge issue, the issue of waste, especially, is there's so many aspects of it, so many elements. Of it. So I thought it would be nice initially to start by trying to sort of map it out if you want, you know, like you have all these in the book or elsewhere, you have these kind of different linkages, different level, national, local, global, you have trade, you have governance, you have all these different elements. So so let me start by when, when we talk about waste, one of the things which comes early in the book is that we don't actually have a clear definition of of what it mm -hmm. is. So how, so how would you define define waste? Oh, gosh. I mean, I've <laughs> um, well, I think defining waste is is sort of combining the act of throwing something away. Um, I mean, I think that's the basic definition that people have, especially if they have a perception of waste as just something you get rid of. It has no afterlife. Um, you just kind of uh, put it in a bin or whatever and just assume it gets taken away. And I think that really doesn't capture a couple of elements. One is uh, things that we have broken or, or have no use versus or, uh, things that do have a use. So, you know, we throw away a lot of things we might still be able to use. And it also means that you can't really think of, of, of waste as products having an afterlife. And I think that um, the story of a lot of things that we would now we now throw away are things historically and in most parts of the world actually do have an afterlife. So I, I found it was interesting working with a few definitions, one of which was has been the one I've used throughout my work since 1990, whatever it was, and that is things we what is it things we throw away or cannot use by one of the very early authors in this field of discard studies, um, Kenneth Goulet. And that is in strong contrast to other international definitions like the Basel Convention or um, I think the World Health Organization has one, which is all just like it's trash, throw it away, it's dangerous, you know, let's, let's get rid of it. And I think that that, um, and again, uh, going back to, to Goulet's work, you know, for him to say, one of my favorite quotes there was, we talk about, um, you know, a, a, um, a blob of mustard on a plate versus a decommissioned uh, nuclear reactor or an oil rig at sea. I don't know, how can they be the same thing? How can we even like put them in the same sentence under the same kind of rubric as waste? So, you know, there's, I, I guess the answer to your question is, I don't have a, a a strong definition, but that's because you have to think about this stuff in very different ways. So is there a way that they get categorized, like on, I don't know, in, academically or legally, or because like you say, the, the I know, so is there also a difference between like things to me personally might be a waste. I don't want to use this laptop anymore, for instance, but uh -huh. the laptop still works. Is there a different from something which is like a broken product or just like you said, trash or something? Uh -huh. um, I, well, I determine, I guess that the, the, the um, difference that people point out is between waste and scrap. So this term scrap is better applied to things that might have a value or a use. 
um, versus waste where they don't. But again, that's a highly contingent definition. And um, I think something like a laptop that still works is on the scrap side. I mean, that, that can be, um, even if it isn't, um, potentially repaired and refurbished and reused, many are. Um, but one that's broken is, is a very different, um, you know, a very different thing. Like it's been stomped on or, you know, had acid spills all over it, you know, you can't use it again. So yeah, that goes into the, goes into the landfill. So there are a lot of, yeah, different, different ways of categorizing waste. And again, that I, I think about food waste, if you're thinking about something that is, um, you know, waste to some and, and food to others, that there's this sense that, um, oh, food loss. That's the one that I, I find quite useful as, a, as an example. Food loss, usually when people talk about food waste, there's um, food, food waste, stuff you throw away, consumers, whoops, um, they're to blame or however you choose to frame that. And then food loss is considered loss in the fields, like, food that spoils between where it's grown and where it's bought. And um, the, the whole way in which it's framed is sort of like, well, they have food loss in the South because they're poor and don't have fridges and they have food waste in the North because we buy and eat too much <laughs> or have too big portions. And that's absolutist. But one of the examples that in one of the mainstream reports on food loss is bananas falling off a truck. I'm like, well, it depends where they're falling off the truck. <laughs> there are people around who will pick <laughs> bananas and eat them. I mean, that's sort of a, yeah, it's just kind of a not really thinking through socially what food loss and waste is. And then you get into, probably going on way too long for this point, but uh, loss in the fields. Um, there's a different, you know, a lot of farmers or agricultural companies really will plow that back in. And that means they're not allowing their workers, for instance, to take the food or whatever vegetables um, distribute them or for them to distribute them. So then you get into what becomes a waste because somebody's asserting ownership over that and doesn't, you know, for some reason just doesn't want people to take it. But anyway, and then it might also become fertilizer for the soil. So it's incredibly contingent. <laughs> <laughs> it's already I, I, connects into so many broader political discussions, just even by this like little thing about bananas falling off a truck, you're suddenly, or tomatoes plowed into the earth, you're suddenly in deep into global capitalism. <laughs> I remember the debates around supermarkets, like when things expire in the supermarkets, what do they do with that? What do they throw it away? Do they give it to charities? And I, I'm not sure I, don't, I remember the details, but I remember there was a report one time is that they act like actually throw it away intentionally for some reason. Yeah, they do. Um, that they do. Yeah. Why is that? Is that? Uh... Well, they feel like they can't sell it to consumers, and it's actually illegal to donate okay, if something's expired. expired, even if it's still usable. There's there are rules against that, so it's it's a bit of a tragic situation and. Again, you get to this point where people, supermarkets will throw this stuff into dumpsters and often then throw bleach on it afterwards. So they don't attract people coming in and dumpster divers, freegans taking the food. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so let's go like maybe a way to try and understand that if we take like a pick, like a random product and see what happens to it. Let's say my old laptop, for instance. So that's an example of a, of a uh, 
e-waste, I guess, as, as we will talk maybe. But so so what happens? I, I have no idea what happens to my laptop once once I'm I'm done with it. Uh -huh. So so what what is the store like what happens to that product after? Right. Well, let's see. I just trying to think what I do with my old laptops. They're mostly around the house. Um, but you can drop it off. There's uh, companies that will take in old laptops, uh, repair stores will often just keep them and they might refurbish them and resell if that's um, possible. And those you can find on eBay, for instance. So that's one option in the, in the global north. In the global north, they also might be ground down. Um, probably not laptops, but other kinds of electronic waste have, they just kind of, and somehow, and you can extract some of what's valuable out of that. Uh, the other thing that might happen is that it'll be shipped as, um, what, as a charity to somewhere in the global south, um, closing the digital divide. And I think this practice was one of the early forms of electronic waste trade. I know that my very first Mac classic I donated, should have kept it, done it, but <laughs> a collector's item. Um, and that was, you know, sent to Ghana or something. And, you know, now we're very well aware that those mostly became e-waste. Um, and so that you know, they didn't work. They didn't have, um, you know, power sources and so on. Even then, I, I don't know if that was the full story, but the other thing is just simply they get kind of smuggled out um, in shipments uh, to uh, Nigeria, Ghana, other countries around the world. And the rhetoric is that there they get, you know, dismantled, some things extracted um, or burned and dumped. And many argue that actually the reality is a little bit more complicated that there's more of a repair and refurbishment going on, that you can't look at these problems of moving across borders without looking at demand. Um, you know, we can think certainly of us offloading our old equipment, um, but that's not the whole story. There are people in those places who want to buy that and do something with it. I mean, clearly that you don't just spend money just to kind of go dump it in. Um, one of the city dump sites, incineration sites. And there are people who track e-waste too. And I, one of the, the Basel Action Network, which is one of the big global waste trade activist groups, one of the most well-known, had this project where they attached GPS devices to different electronics. And they actually found that the uh, small companies that you know took back your e-waste and promised to do something with it were actually the ones who were shipping the, <laughs> the, a lot of their stuff overseas. Um, so yeah, your laptop would have a fairly complicated afterlife. Afterlife, yeah. And ideally, ideally, but you know. <laughs> and and when you say uh, smuggled, is that because it's illegal to trade or? Yeah, most of the most of the time it is. It's a very gray area, but the U.S. technically has banned e-waste export, and certainly a lot of states have. The idea is that it should all be dealt with at home. Um, E-waste, I don't, those laws are obviously not, um, not um, complied with and there is no international law that directly bans e-waste despite the Basel Convention, which is the convention that deals with hazardous waste trade. It's been very hard to include e-waste as a strict legal component or 
under this legal definition of hazardous waste under that convention. So, and then countries in the global south have banned imports as well. I believe Ghana technically has. I, it's just one of those. There's a huge gap as far as I can tell between law and practice. Mm-hmm. Not unusual in many parts of the world. So that's so basically each country. Some countries allow it. Some countries ban it. Some countries ban it. Don't enforce it too much. Or you know. So you have. Yeah. I mean, China has actually done a pretty good job of um, enforcing a ban. Um, partly that means it's all gone to Hong Kong. And heaven knows how if Hong Kong's being absorbed into China. I and mean, there's so many other problems that are bigger than the waste problem. But for me, that's sort of fascinating because it's become it's traditionally been like outside of the, the, the fence that China's put up around itself, around waste imports. Uh, but but what China's done is actually because it's got so much domestic electronic plastic, other waste now it doesn't need the foreign waste. It can work with that itself. It's own and, and that's a new thing in the case of China, right? I remember watching some film about. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I think you mentioned one film in the book, but I've seen something different. When I've seen one which was basically like a photographer, and it wasn't a film on waste, but part of the photos was on a waste site in, in, in China. So, and I've read in the book, you mentioned this other film, which was quite big, I think. So that's a new thing, the ban on imports. Um, the e-waste ban is actually 2015, but the new ban is on plastic and paper. That's from just a couple of years back. And, and the 215, up to that point, China was a big location for the imports of e-waste? Yep. huge. Again, illegal. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of, but they hadn't really cracked down. Uh, they went to the same Guangdong province and uh, the city, I could, just name I can never pronounce, uh, Guayu, G-U-I-Y-U, I think. Um, people giving me different pronunciations and I'm never sure if they've been entirely like serious with me. Um, but that was the place where it was all dumped. And then the Chinese, the Beijing government actually went in and they formalized the informal sector there to the extent that rather than the sort of jumble of workshops and places with incredibly dangerous work conditions, they turned it into a series of small repair shops and refurbishment shops. It's very regulated. And I think the part of the idea is to, you get the taxes in that way. You know, you have this big messy informal sector that goes under the radar. You've got a way of formalizing and creating a business creating revenue for the government, which is quite different from what we think. So it's been transformed into this orderly place out of disorder, although there are many problems that remain with contamination of drinking water and that sort of thing that kind of go back to the longer term impacts of dismantling and um, incorrectly managing e-waste there. So one of the things I guess that relate to that, which I could like in the book is how in each of these sites, you have this kind of formal, informal, is this done by kind of local kind of community? Are there big businesses? So how, what is the picture on that on a global level? Is this done mostly, I know it's very different between different countries, but but for instance, in, in the case of your laptop, that's initially starts with a companies, right? With kind of formalized economic actors. But uh-huh. then the trade is by, because that's, he said, smuggling, so is that- It's smuggling, it's brokering, sometimes it's, it is above board, but it is, it's based on, um, and you can, I think probably to broaden out to the whole category of scrap, 
yeah. it's it's a fascinating kind of story of, of relationships between small scrapyards and brokers. Often, again, individuals or small companies come in, buy the scrap and sell it on to the larger businesses, um, shipping through back sort of that reverse haulage process with the empty uh, container ships. So it's... Um, it's it's a it's a very um, diverse business and just uh, fascinating to learn about. It's hard to really trace the chains. I've not actually done that myself, but a, a couple of students have in the past of like where's it going, who's picking it up. So for many municipal authorities in the states, up until uh, China's ban, China was the main destination on plastics. So just completely legitimately been bailing it up and and selling it on to brokers in the US who tended onto brokers in China, it was, it was a sort of very, very complex um, system and connects with um, formal and, and, and informal waste work in, in interesting and different ways because what is it, tens of millions of people around the world are, are primarily employed in waste work of some sort. And a lot of that is domestically imported waste. Um, sorry, domestically produced waste, but some of it is also heavy imported. Um, although that's usually a fairly small percentage of domestic waste streams. And, but it's, it's not really the domain of large multinational corporations trading in waste. You know, that's, that's something that's done on a much smaller scale. It's networks, it's connections. Um, in the case of say electronic waste, um, or other kinds of waste, it's often family connections. So Ghanaian immigrants in the UK will collect various electronic waste or other kinds of just products that can be um, repaired and fixed um, and then uh, send them to their family or small business or take them oh. back with them in small cases. So it's, it's, it's a really, um, that's a business that kind of crosses the informal formal line, I suppose. Mm. Seems the whole sector, or I don't know if it's a sector, but the whole area crosses that line in different yeah. ways. Yeah. Yep. I, mean, I work on like trade, so in trade, everything is a bit clear, right? You know, you have the trade classification, kind of these products, you could kind of, uh, it's a bit more, yeah, I get uh, data between countries, flows. I guess no, actually you can do that. Comtrade, there's a HS code for plastic scrap. <laughs> does it cover all these different categories or? Uh, you can, e-waste is harder to find, but okay. you can certainly find scrap plastic in there. And those are officially reported details. And, you know, it's quite clear that there's, um, you know, that's an under report, but I find that data very useful for trends. I mean, again, that makes, Waste is, is a commodity that's traded, but it's a very different kind of commodity in that there's a lot of interest in not having the full picture emerge, but it does have those codes. Um, and yeah, it's... I, I, I remember without, without giving names, someone I, I knew who worked in an international organization and on trade issues, and he used to look at data for countries, and then he would see like one of the main imports or exports is waste. But then he meets policymakers and he's like, I can't really pitch waste as like a sector they should focus on. Like policymakers wouldn't like to hear that. So, so. Oh, no. <laughs> I can give you an anecdote on that one. Um, I did my dissertation on um, hazardous waste trading back in the day. So actually legal waste trading. I was looking at why Great Britain was the world's largest net importer 
legal net importer of hazardous waste back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. And um, at that point, it's the early days of the internet. And I looked up online, I got the Department of the Environment, and I was able to just download and print their statistics on what kind of waste was being imported and from where, where it was going. And a couple of years later, I went and looked and it totally been replaced by the shiny. Because <laughs> I guess at that point, the internet was still, you know, private-ish. Um, yeah. They didn't realize people would actually be reading this. So, yes, it is very difficult to talk to people about why was Britain the number one importer? Do you know? Well, <laughs> I, I was that you know, your PhD I, topic. No. <laughs> oh yeah, PhD topic, political economy. Uh, I was looking at regulatory structures and industry structures, and then state society relations. So, um, very much prevalence of industry in the UK. The waste management industry and the recycling industry very powerful connections with the government, and then you had because my comparison was with Germany, where you had what well. Um, the biggest exporter in this case, where you had much more strict incorporation of environmental movements, in obviously the Green Party and government, and more exclusion in the UK, especially this was Thatcher, the Thatcherite period. Um, and then you also had a much more, I looked at decentralized government, so it very, very few um, controls in the UK on what municipal authorities were the ones who really made those decisions and issued the permits. And there wasn't the same formal lines of, of reporting and communication that there were in the federal system of Germany. So a whole bunch of things that kind of added up to, to um, Britain not being able to really stop this trade. I mean, John Major announced a ban on imports in 1991, which they weren't able to do. That spoke to a lot of things. I mean, again, like all all waste studies, um, you can often learn a lot about societies and how they function by taking that window, just simply hazardous waste trading. I'd probably do it a little differently today, um, take a bit more of an historical, maybe a direct global political economy lens. I was very much in a traditional political science department, but I think I came up with some really interesting facts and features and a good way to think about um, theorizing. Now I think about it, it was really good cross-scale theorizing before it was a thing. So that was, um, that was, that was interesting. I noticed in the book, you draw examples, like you mentioned, uh, I know these cases, I'm from the region. So Beirut and Lebanon, you mentioned Cairo, uh -huh. Zabalin. Uh, area you mentioned like you've drawn a lot of different different kind of cases which makes it quite nice nice read I think do you try and follow multiple like how do you do that do you do you follow different I don't know like do you try and research different locations kind of within um, yes yep and I read a lot and pick up stories and just um yeah, I, I I suppose now more and more I can kind of follow the regions, but I was really following the case studies. Um, so much of that was in the news, uh, like the Beirut situation. Um, the Zabaline I'd been reading about for a while as a story, and there was a really good, I think I cited it extensively, the piece in the New Yorker about their role, continuing role in Cairo. So, and the... Um, there's quite a big kind of waste, uh, uh, like the, the oh, was it ISWA, the International Solid Waste Association, actually kind of has reports and so on. There's a really good and a couple of reports 
done in collaboration with the UN. But it's really just kind of reading stories, getting things out of newspapers, talking to friends. I, I know quite a few people who work, I mean, especially on informal waste work and some of those stories. So I connect with them, see what they're working on. So, so a case like Zabalin, maybe maybe could explain it briefly for, but but what how is that standard model in more developing countries versus a more formalized model in the advanced economies, or is that a very broad generalization? Um, it's not a million miles away. I think it's a more of a it's. Yeah, I mean, there are some really critical features in common. I think that the Zabalin are a little bit more, a little bit more entrenched for an informal. Let's explain what it is first. Yes, yeah, so the Zabalin is the organization of waste collectors in Cairo who've been existed for um, decades now and have been responsible for most of the consumer household waste pickup in Cairo. They take it back to their um, towns on the border of Cairo, and there they um, will divide it up, sell some of it on, um, throw some of it out, and then feed organic um, biological waste to their pigs. And here's like the, the, the sort of critical piece is that they're Coptic Christians. Uh, they're not Muslim. Therefore, they were able to use, they sell the, <laughs> slaughter the pigs and sell them to tourist resorts for meat fascinating kind of story there, but also kind of where the government managed to, it was the excuse they used to shut them down. Oh, was the excuse they used. It's one of the, you know, the way they got support, but also talking about hygiene, which is also a way that um, governments categorize and powerful actors categorize waste pickers as dirty. You see that metaphor everywhere. So that was part of the problem. But in fact, they, they managed to fight back. And, and the, the New Yorker piece was pointed out at the start that through all this turmoil in Egypt, three or four separate governments, all of these things going on, the trash was still collected <laughs> by this, this group. So it's kind of a fascinating case study in quite an integrated um, waste picker community that moves more towards the formal, but isn't there and it's an example of one that's that's greatly um, antagonized the Egyptian government. And the Egyptian government, a bit like this is what was going on in Lebanon, was trying to contract out waste collection to a multinational corporation. I'm not quite sure which one. <laughs> they operate in hard ways to really trace. The, the global waste companies are folded into the big utilities companies like Veolia, in France and uh, Violi is one of the main ones and they have all kinds of international enterprises, but I didn't have time to really dig into that and talk to them. But anyway, so there's that going on, which is a way of kind of sanitizing and cleaning up the city. And a lot of cities have tried that and it's usually not worked as far as I can tell. It's led to a lot of opposition from the waste picker communities who are often quite well organized. And so in other parts of the world, um, like uh, in Pune in India, and uh, Belo Horizonte in Brazil, there have been efforts to actually formalize the informal workforce to create a more protected, maybe a more controlled and regulated um, sector of waste um, sanitation workers who are you know, utilizing, utilizing the structures that have been there for a very long time. So that's rather than replacing it by a multinational corporation. Mm -hmm. In Egypt, I think, 
it's it's actually a neighborhood too i think it's called zabalin i think it's mm -hmm. like a specific yes. neighborhood mm -hmm. and you you mentioned also the case the opposite case I'm not sure if it's opposite but you mentioned beirut and lebanon when they had no nobody collecting waste for yeah. a long period of time it was accumulating and becoming there's like a place this photo of like i think they call it like a mountains of, 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 of yes of, and you can see them riverbeds too i mean I, I i'd love to know exactly more what happened i mean my knowledge of the story starts at the beginning of the the problem i mean again uh but that is another example of, of, of one of the general laws of, of politics I'm finding that if waste piles up in streets, then governments are severely shaken and often overthrown. Not in this case, but, um, but it was certainly, um, a, you know, a case of a government trying to formalize and clean up and drastically failing. Yeah. I do think, I can't remember the details, that might have been something with a contract with yeah, well, something like it was yeah, but I can't remember the details either. Yeah, but it was used a lot politically after, so it was like an example of how failed the state has become, right? Yes, so, yes. So the, there was a protest movement, I think, a year after or two years. I can't remember the exact date, and that mm -hmm. was like, okay, this is where we're at now, right? Like this is the piling up mountains of trash. You know, this is basically the political class. Mm, yeah. here. So it was very used in that context, but I don't remember the, the details. Yeah. Mm -hmm. One of the things I, I find interesting, actually, I actually was thinking about this for the first time because I, I was thinking about the visual that I use in, in my slides, and it's all in white plastic bags, which is unusual, really unusual for trash in, mm -hmm. in, in, in southern countries and big sort of those big mega cities. It's usually not, usually sort of much less formally packaged in totally non biodegradable. Um, materials. So again, it'd be kind of fascinating to dig in some more. Yeah. Um, and I was I, sort of just to stay in um, in Beirut, the um, the port of Lebanon explosion. I think of that as as a case of illegally traded hazardous waste mm -hmm. in the worst kind of way because it was dumped, left there as trash. I mean, it's supposed to be some value, supposed to be taken to Mozambique to use in in um, I guess the creation of um, explosives and was left there became something incredibly hazardous and of no value to anyone. No one was trying to sell it on <laughs> in any way. And so I, yeah, that's that incidental country, but again, the same corruption and incompetence that allowed that to happen. I mean, there are still investigations into that because nobody's clear what really is the whole thing about what was the purpose exactly. So there are different theories around it, but I think, yeah, that's one of the analysis that has no value to anyone. There are other analysis of mm -hmm. it's being used in other things, but it's like, okay, there, is, yeah. there is like an investigation, but I don't think it's actually moving forward. But anyway, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to talk about something I don't really know much about, but I know that, that there is an investigation into that. Mm -hmm. So, so it, when when you come to the political economy, like you said, of or of waste, is there kind of a so then so we have the national political economy level, but there's also sort of international political economy in terms of do we have some sort of kind of agreements rules? Uh, where are we in in that? And again, maybe I'm thinking too much from a traditional trade perspective where. You have the WTO and you have this and you have bilateral. So, so what's the landscape here? So we know that 
a lot of this is gray area. Some of it could be illegal. Some countries ban it. Some countries allow it. How, how does it look if you try and... Oh, it's messy. And again, this is one thing, if I had time, if COVID hadn't happened, I'd be further along in thinking about this. But it's been a very unlegalized um, field at the, at the global level. Uh, and clearly, a lot of problems have emerged in the past few years that suggest that maybe there needs to be some venue globally for this to be discussed. And the one that's popped up actually is the Basel Convention on Hazardous Waste Trading. This sort of 1989 convention that was came into being directly because of a lot of in, really kind of egregious incidents of waste dumping, hazardous waste, like real like industrial sludge sort mm. of thing labeled as fertilizer or what have you dumped in communities and um, South Africa, the Caribbean and others are some of the high profile ones. and clearly from the global north. So the convention was set up to control this trade, um, had established a ban amendment um, in 1995 that incidentally did not come into force until um, November, 2019. <laughs> right. So it's a very weak treaty that people kind of like, sort of had put on the shelf or to the back of their minds. And um, although, I would say as far as treaties go, one was some significant normative impact in that you really saw the demon, you know, the more awareness of waste dumping and the problematizing of it. And I think it definitely slowed down all of that business. It certainly empowered NGOs within countries and international NGOs to be really active around this. But anyway, kind of to, to when all the, um, the news broke around China's ban and then the immediate kind of shifting of plastic scrap slash waste to other countries in Southeast Asia who started to um, ban it. You saw a, um, uh, who started to ban it, then you, you started to see countries mobilizing and saying plastic is a hazardous waste, we need to regulate it under the Basel Convention. So last year, um, a, an amendment entered into force that counted plastic among the various lists, annexes associated with the Basel Convention. And it, it's, it's an interesting case. It's because um, there's still a lot of dispute around the different plastic is highly differentiated some of it is actually quite reusable and some of it absolutely is not and it depends on what condition it's in but there was a great kind of a pause to say yay you know plastic is a hazardous waste it's now been banned and the U.S. can't export it because it's not a member of Basel can't even export it to other OECD countries and kind of when you look at the language as one always must <laughs> international law that's kind of not what it's doing apart from banning plastics that are directly contaminated with stuff that's hazardous. It's a prior informed consent regime for plastic, which means that the importing country has to consent in writing, which is one of the most problematic parts of the Basel Convention, its prior informed consent process. So the, the importing country has consent on, on what? On Importing the uh, plastic waste. In writing to the exporting Something somewhere. In so if I want to export plastic from the UK to, I don't know, to Jordan, I need to mm -hmm. get an approval from the Jordanian government. Government. Okay. Okay. 
And yeah, but there's no like point person. There's no like in other conventions that have this mechanism. They've usually said countries have to establish yeah. you know, a point person or something within the government. Yeah, Basel does not do any of that. It is really, really loose. So I need to go oh. there and find out a way. I need yes. to go there and figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And, um, you know, usually, you know, a little bit of cash slipped in with the plastic for the port authorities will usually do that, I think. So I'm, I'm much more skeptical about this than the others. There's also, as you mentioned, bilateral agreements um, that those can circumvent the Basel Convention quite easily. Uh, so... The thing that I find interesting is the absence of the World Trade Organization in this whole yeah. area. It has popped in every so often. Um, there was a case many years ago about reused secondhand tires being exported from Europe to Brazil. Brazil said no, Europe brought them up in front of the WTO. And um, yeah, but otherwise, there's not been a lot of activity I've seen from the WTO on this. I mean, obviously, the WTO has a lot of problems, but its dispute system seems to have remained functional um, throughout all of its bigger problems as an organization. And I, I'd be interested to spend some time looking at regional trade agreements too. to see what I think they what say. the secondhand clothing especially is a quite a mm. big issue, right? So. Mm. Is that, is that no. the case you mentioned or did I get that wrong? No, actually that is a case. It's not, it's dumping. That's under the, that's true. Yeah. There are parts that technically, I don't know. This was, this was dumping of, of retreaded tires. Oh, like, I see. Yeah. You know, oh, no, no, no. Okay. It was I a, a similar. Yeah. Thing you said, yeah. Oh yeah. It was tires uh, who were, yeah, Brazil. I think, you know, there was obviously a little bit of this, always a little bit of stuff going on there, but, um, but they were a hazard. Tire fires are awful. They're breeding grounds for malarial mosquitoes. There were a lot of problems there. And the, e, the WTO ruled in favor of the European community, which it was back then, um, but told Brazil that it could maintain a ban as long as it maintained a ban on import of retarded tires from everywhere. That was that very difficult. Non-discrimination on the part of the World Trade Organization rules. Um, there's been less movement to really control clothing as dumping, although that's bubbling up as quite important. And I was on a webinar um, a few months ago on this exact uh, topic with a Ghanaian um, activist slash designer who was really involved in efforts to stop um, the dumping of Western clothes and to encourage a revival of Ghanaian fashion and, and materials. And I think that's something that um, hasn't, again, I don't think has been directly addressed. I yet. think um, there's the famous case there is the Rwanda US case, which was. Oh, there is. Trying okay. To remember, trying to remember the date. Uh, let me just check the exact year. So I don't oh, get that. So Look basically, Rwanda, um, because they have an industrialization strategy around clothing sector, um, so they decided to secondhand. I'm just looking it up quickly to get the year. So they decided to ban uh, to ban uh, imports of secondhand clothing, mm -hmm. and so Rwanda clothing spat with the U.S. Okay, so that's 2000. 20 this article but it started before so basically yeah to promote the local domestic industry 
they ban secondhand clothing, but then the U.S. puts uh, trade pressure on that because uh, they argued that against trade agreement. I think not sure if it was trade agreement or the AGOA Act. You know, the Africa Growth and Opportunity. Yes. Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm trying to to try and remember the story, but there is strong push domestically in a lot of countries to buy both, in some cases, foreign investments in the textile sector, but in some cases, local producers, like probably the designer that you mentioned, to, to stop that. And there's a debate around the trade policy aspects of that. So that's like an interesting area, I think. Yeah, and there's another aspect of that, which is what I'm starting to call big charity. Yeah. <laughs> there's too much to look at, but because a lot of that is donations, and you go back to yeah. ways too, but, you know, you've got that like, the, you know, these are things that people give away to the poor. And it's like Oxfam and others. I, I don't want to mention, I should, probably shouldn't name names um, without naming the entire sector, but I don't know that, that that organization is the problem. But that was definitely something that's come up in discussions and where that would fit in charitable donations. I don't know what the World Trade Organization thinks of them, if that's how goods are explained. I mean, I know that that e-waste trading got away for a long time under the closing the digital divide label yeah yeah yeah. i mean so here it's saying um okay so rwanda is the only country to introduce tariff of four four dollar per kilogram for used clothing in 2018 the u.s responded by putting tariffs of 30 percent on rwandan clothing so so they put 30% tariff in return. And I think there was some mobilization in the US around this issue. Could be some of the, the organizations involved in the process, I, I guess, um, needs like more reading into that. But I remember there was some sort of mobilization. The fashion industry is mobilizing around fast fashion, which is um, as much about just waste as it is about exports, mm-hmm. but that comes in. <laughs> That seems really petty to put a 30% tariff on imports of Rwandan clothing. I mean, oh, yeah, that's, that's just plain irritating. It's, it's, it's definitely an interesting case because I think uh, even we would, in the program we have at the university, we go with the students to Uganda, usually before mm-hmm. COVID. Uh, and in my program, it's in trade and industry. So we visit factories, farms, Ministry of Trade, and we always interview, there's a big uh, clothing company there that is trying to promote like domestic cotton all the way to final export. And all the time this issue gets highlighted, which is the issue of secondhand clothing, how it affects the, but then consumers like secondhand clothing. So it's a bit of a political, because consumers find them nice, cheap, you know, etc. So there is a bit of a divide if a government goes, which is, I guess, traditional in these kind of import substitution cases. The government imposes strong restrictions, consumers are not happy or industries happy. Uh-huh. But yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting case. And, and I guess like, so China introducing this ban in 2015 must have been like a huge kind of watershed moment in this. Oh, you mean period. the 2018, uh, the, 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 the plastic? No, the, 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 the you said um, the e-waste ban was less, as far as I can tell, of a seismic shock than the plastic. Oh, the plastic. Let's go with the plastic. We were definitely not exporting, although there's some crazy figures out about that, not exporting nearly as much of our e-waste to China. But we were exporting around 50%, 40, 40 to 50% of the world's plastic um, 
recycling. And by the world, it's of course mostly OECD countries which were shipped to China um, to be reused um, in their industrial processes. So the closing off of that market was just a, a massive shock. So what happened in that case? Was more recycling being done in the OECD countries or did it go elsewhere or what happened? Combination of things, mostly landfill in the in a lot of countries and incineration if you're in Europe, landfill if you're in the US. Um, and then, yes, it went to other countries. So what you see, actually, this Comtrade data is quite helpful on that. Again, you're looking more at trends than believing absolute quantities, but um, Exports to China more or less stopped. I think there's still an illegal trade that always is, but to other Southeast Asian countries, to Turkey, which has just announced a ban on plastic waste imports and um, other parts of the world. But yeah, it was, and that was again seen as a big problem for countries like Malaysia, um, who announced that they were going to ship a whole bunch of it back to the US. I don't know if they actually did that or not. Um, but um, yeah, and then it really, it was a, a sort of a, a reckoning for recycling, the recycling sector, because it turned out that there'd been no investment in recycling in the United States, for example, since really the early 2000s. Because it's all being sent to... Being, yeah, handily shipped, much cheaper to put it in the empty container ships and send it off. And again, you know, that's where the demand was. And it was actually a big moneymaker for local authorities. And the demand was because they use that plastic ship in industry. Yes. In China. Yeah. Okay. In China. So, so basically products get exported from China to the U.S., used in the U.S., sent back, recycled. Yeah. I think that's kind of like a way to think about it. Yes. And it was, I, I you know, I... Uh, we messed it up. I mean, if it had been plastic ones and twos or clean, you know, that was a pretty good trade because it would have been used. We didn't really, don't really, we do have facilities for that here in the US, but it was also easier to, um, more lucrative to send it on, um, less problematic uh, and in smaller quantities, but also the problem was how it was being dismantled in, in China. It was a bit like the situation with e-waste 10, 15 years previously and in terms of the health uh, the health and the impacts and of informal work on impacts on informal workers so that's um, again it's a complicated story and I think that this is where that narrative of northern perpetrator southern victim isn't always the most useful lens to really understand what's is going that, on is that because why is that um, it's because it just assumes that we're taking our trash and dumping it on poor brown people and who just kind of have to live with it and die with it and um, have no use for it. And that is really not how the system works. That There's people at, at the other end who are willing to buy and sometimes it does get adequately reused, sometimes it doesn't. But there's also um, the whole idea of the trade being north to south is also becoming more and more fictional as a narrative. Um, some of the really good studies on e-waste are starting to show just this really dense network of shipments all around the world, rather than these big heavy arrows that you see in some depictions of like basically people still use this diet map from 
the UN that's like 25 years old now, which just shows these big arrows going into China. And it's, it's not that. It's a really, really dense network. And was there any country who thought this China bank could be like an economic opportunity or? Companies within countries. This was the Southeast Asia yeah. um, case where you had actually a bunch of Chinese companies moved their facilities to Malaysia and they were the ones who were importing. That's part of what was going on. But the government was not keen on that. No, no, no. Uh, Clearly it was overwhelming their system and in China at least, a large system and a manufacturing sector that used at least some of it, Um, but a smaller country like Malaysia had no use for it. Uh, part, I know it's just sort of this this fascinating dynamic of well, yeah, global capitalism kind of moving in very quickly in directions that are pretty dysfunctional in this case. Uh, I think I'd be really interested, sort of not that we can go there anymore, but the the counterfactual and if COVID hadn't happened, mm-hmm. what we would have seen in this sector because there were some interesting things going on with. Chinese investment in U.S. recycling. Mm-hmm. Before, and, before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these uh, same it, companies yeah. were opening recycling yeah. facilities in the U.S., mm-hmm. which would eliminate the requirement for the circular shift uh, shipping. Right. They could. The plan was that they would recycle it into pellets, reusable products, and then ship those back to China. All right. Yeah. So then you recycle mm-hmm. and ship. Yeah. 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 And, and how, since you mentioned that, because I saw one of the articles you published recently was on COVID-19 impact. So what's COVID-19 from what you followed? How did it affect this whole kind of area? It was big, uh, especially... That's again, one of my uh, very big questions. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, um, it was, I mean, I tend to look at it primarily from a local lens, but it's local events that really add up, which it really derailed zero waste movements. Um, mm. Certainly for the past year and a half, it's unclear as to what the future is. I mean, it's rallying, but we'd seen by about you know 2020 massive support for taking out single-use plastics, um, getting you know, plastic bags, straws, um, all of that. And then, um, and it was a contested area. The plastics industry was fighting back. The folks who produce plastic grocery bags, but in the EU, in the US, parts of the US and certainly California, there are a lot of uh, high level, like state level government and um, and at the EU level measures to really deal with this. And what I, I can talk mostly from the US perspective where everything's very local. So cities and towns kind of make their own decisions around this. And as soon as COVID came up, then suddenly you see grocery plastic bags reappearing in grocery stores. Uh, coffee stores and, and others, cafes refusing reusable cups and other kinds of foodware. Um, so, and then of course the growth of, you know, the PPE with the masks and the, the gloves um, and a lot of trash resulting from takeout, you know, delivery, food for delivery. So everything was suddenly like even San Francisco rolled back its plastic bag for a while. It was, it was kind of crazy. So I felt at the time, I mean, it was very clear very early on when Jessica Sagas, my student, and I wrote that piece that it was a total canard, the hygiene side. 
it's like we already knew that the virus does not live on surfaces and that plastic did not offer um, protection when other materials did not. We know that. I mean, you know, like reusable shopping bags don't carry COVID. They can carry other things if they're not clean, but that's a different <laughs> argument. But the footprint or the fingerprint of the plastics and chemical industry were all over a lot of these bands. It's quite clear that they were able to lobby. To remove the bands. To remove the bands. So, or not have them implemented. So the ban was on, on, on what was the ban exactly on? On um, uh, the ban on grocery, plastic grocery bags. In, the complete ban. Yeah, okay. that, that San Francisco had had. And these, these bags appeared awfully fast. And then other, in other parts of the country, like New York City was about to start enforcing a ban oh. that they had on the books. So that was also didn't happen. And so you have this big resurgence. And um, I was starting to see the return of reusable mugs. Mm. Um, Starbucks and Pete, some of the big chains are starting to say they will do that. And certainly bags are back in the, well, I live in, I only live in sort of the crunchier parts of the country where there's a lot of support. So those reusable bags are back in grocery stores, including some of the mainstream supermarkets. But I don't know. I don't know what the long-term impact is going to be. Um, I mean, two things from what you said, I think. So take away, that must have been a huge increase, right? So, and the second is shopping too. So like online delivery, right? So is, does yeah. that increase use? I'm guessing yes, but does that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's overall um, just massively increased the amount of packaging and yeah. Um, and food-related packaging. And, and interestingly, of course, a shift, too, to the households. So office and sort of municipal waste outs in sort of institutions went way down and, and household waste went way up. It's more likely to be contaminated, too, so far less recyclable. People are more likely to throw in food or leave food in takeout containers. It's not the sort of same cleaner plastic and cardboard that you would get. Mm. I'm just thinking like in, in my building, basically for the lockdown period, it's almost mm -hmm. like people, everybody doesn't leave the house except to get packages from Amazon midday or whatever in the morning, mm -hmm. get food for lunch, get food for <laughs> dinner sometimes. So the amount of like uh, takeaway here is went like crazy. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's massive. I actually, um, and you know, they, they say, I spent two weeks in hotel quarantine in Australia recently. I had to go back for, um, family reasons. Uh, normally, I would have gotten gone back quite a bit earlier, but just the amount of plastic paper bags accumulated in that two-week stay and masks, it was massive. It really it was a very visible impact. And they kept trying to give me little plastic water bottles. And I'm like, no, stop that. Tap water is totally fine. But it was, it was definitely um, a period of, uh, you could very well see sort of that crossover between medical and consumer household waste that was quite um, concentrated and serious. So. And is there like data on trends in this area? Like for instance, before COVID, were we overall as the words, you know, using more or less? Because there's mm -hmm. a push to use less, but at the same time, there are other ways in which people use more, right? So what was kind of the net, if you want, what was? We're still gathering data on that. Yeah. It's too, yeah. One of our projects in my lab is to look at Berkeley had introduced an ordinance on getting rid of um, plastic, 
single-use disposable foodware, which actually covers, so covered a, a broader span than plastics necessarily. And that had to stop with COVID, but done a little bit of data gathering and figuring out what the baseline was and how cafes and so on were thinking about this new set of rules that were kind of complicated. Um, oops, sorry. Um, that were kind of complicated, but then the whole, um, that the COVID hit and you see all these businesses just having to go back to um, single use. And we're still figuring out what's what's happening. Mm. Yeah, um, they're starting to reopen. And one of the, the sad parts of doing um, a whole bunch of cafes and so on in the sample is seeing how many are no longer there and <laughs> going back to do the second round. So we're trying to figure it out. It's going to take a long while to, to get that back on track. Certainly the parts that required investment in from the city into these um, into the businesses that needed washing machines and that kind of dishwashers and that sort mm, of thing. Mm, mm. So I don't want to take too much of your time, but I have a couple of more things I want to kind of, from what you mentioned, I'm curious to learn more about. So one is uh, you mentioned a few times sort of the activism or the NGOs or the zero waste campaign. Um, so what is the main sort of, driving objectives of activism in this issue. So what is yeah. the... Um, the activist landscape is um, very complicated and not always um, in sync with each other. But the um, this is when I studied waste 20 years ago and kind of went to other things and came back. This was one of the big areas of change globally. Um, so domestically, you'd have there was a lot of environmental justice activism in the US, you'd have a lot of sort of national activism against waste dumping. At the global level, there really wasn't much. There was the Basel Action Network uh, that I mentioned, this, the NGO that really focused on um, the hazardous waste trade and implementing the Basel ban on waste dumping, um, hazardous waste or hazardous waste shipments from north to south. But uh, th by the time I got back to it, the transnational scene had really kind of exploded with the addition of transnational waste picker alliances. I think that was a very big change um, as a group that was, turns out to be quite able to organize uh, cross borders. And there are a few theories about this, but one, um, I think one element that's quite important is that waste pickers are very visible. They're outdoors. It's been much easier to reach them if your community organizations or other waste paper organizations wishing, willing to communicate, you could, you're not looking at trying to get into factories and you're looking at people who are largely somewhat self-employed as opposed to controlled by a given business. Also people who are nearly all marginalized within their particular countries. So you've got that. And then some, some sponsorship from informal labor or NGOs in the US and elsewhere to kind of create this scene. So I found that really fascinating. So that's that's uh, that's like a union basically, or some sort of a union? I'd say a horizontal network, not as strong as a union, although there's unionization going on in different parts of the world. And, and I think there's certainly a support from unionized, more formal labor in other countries. So you definitely see that as something going on, but those, that activism, manifested itself in, in different places, um, one being uh, the climate negotiations, because that was against being displaced um, from landfills and so on to allow for 
methane capture capping program. So that was quite big. And then also um, the, I think the zero waste movement had really taken off globally. There's a lot more zero waste alliances um, that cross Europe and Asia. Uh, the Global Alliance, Gaia, which is began as the Global Alliance for Incineration Alternatives has reformulated itself as a zero waste organization and it has chapters in different parts of the world. So it's a great field for understanding social movements. I taught, got to teach my graduate seminar on social movements in the spring and we talked a lot about waste activism and informal formal organizing and connections and what those kinds of trends represented. So activism. Some of the big kind of policy demands. So you, I'm, you, you know, I've read a bit about the right to repair movement. Would that be? Mm -hmm. That's the other piece of it. Yes, that is a movement that I keep wanting. You know, again, is on the the list of projects, but um, as quite a diverse global movement as an umbrella term, it really encompasses farmer uh, farmers in the U.S. who, you know, whose tractors are, are essentially they can't fix them because they're the past the break of proprietary, they're not told that they can't to kind of fix it collectives in US cities to the kind of repair cafes to Sweden, I think has like an entire shopping mall that's all secondhand repaired goods. So you've got a lot of that, those um, connections around that, that, that whole broad field. Some of it is quite subversive. I mean, you're really coming up against the world's biggest electronic producers, Apple and so on, who really, their business model, because everyone now has a phone, is planned obsolescence. So, so the right to repair, just to explain for, for people, yeah. it's basically the right or changing the design of products or the way of manufacturing in a way to make it easier uh -huh. to repair. To products like yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And to even just supply the knowledge to do so. So it's a combination of um, things being like the laptop I'm working on is very hard to repair full stop, but quite often it's also just simply you're not given the knowledge to do so or to troubleshoot. Um, like back in the day, you'd get a computer and you get a manual like this thick, and that would kind of be something that would help you repair. But again, that's just been something that's become proprietary and that you can't do. And then you've got a loss of skills in other section, sectors where knowledge is no longer being passed on. So it's, um, but it is about sort of community and privatization of knowledge and the loss of, and the loss of these skills that have been passed down through generations. Um, I'm checking my phone. I don't even know how to open the case. No. Uh, yeah. Is that, uh, yeah. So, so some of these companies you said, because the model depends on people replacing every, every few years. So do they see these movements or as a, as a major threat? Is there lobbying back? What's going on yes. with that? Um, every ballot measure in every state apart from Massachusetts in 2012 has been defeated uh, by the computer industry. I don't think we've seen one. I don't think not even in California. Um, they've been able to really mobilize against it. And I would have to really study these campaigns, but um, I imagine that involves quashing the measure before it gets on the ballot or um, just being able to actively campaign against it. I have to look at those campaigns because to an extent, I think people are 
people know about this. I mean, I can talk to anyone and they hate having to replace their phone or their computer every couple of years. It's really frustrating. And I think that it's one of these areas where a psychologist might be looking at some kind of innate understanding of thrift or normative as a norm, as a norm that's important to us. One of the, I guess, if you go back into that, you know, something we picked up in prehistoric era or something like that, I don't know, but the people are really, they don't like it. I don't know of anyone, whatever political opinion who really hate, you know, apart from like, I guess, real techies um, <laughs> who love the, the early adopters, but yeah. I, so especially it'd be interesting that, to see how they do that. Especially that differences are becoming smaller and smaller sometimes. Like, you know, at the beginning you buy a new phone, it's like completely different from the previous one. Now you need to like go read like a whole thing to know even what the difference is in terms of, mm-hmm. unless you're really into the specifications like you said. So it's kind of interesting, yeah. I think here they're adopting some sort of right uh, to repair though, but I don't know much if, because I guess they vary a lot in terms of what they include, but as kind of a flagship law, I think that does is being. I'm not sure if you're following the UK case or the EU as well. I'm not sure now. Kind of believe there was. I've read something that there is some some law going, but I don't know what what it includes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I wanted to kind of finally just ask you about is the the circular economy. So that's again one of the big mm-hmm. big words these days. So what what is that? Or what do you think about it? Yeah, um, I it's I mean the term itself is out of ecological economics yeah. and has quite a long lineage. And at the very you know it's it's a little slippery to actually find a good definition. So it's often seen as the opposite of the linear take make dispose economy, where instead of having everything just thrown away, you try and loop it around. Um, to keep everything in use rather than throw away components. So it's about design, it's about um, reducing emissions, it's about recycling and, and developing effective technologies for really upcycling or, or, or you know, properly recycling products into something of equal value and what you choose to use in that process. And it's, um, you know, I, it's very appealing in the way that it's formulated. Uh, I find that some of the people who um, put it forward, it becomes this very sort of elite technocratic notion. Um, Not to say that it's apolitical. I mean, I do think you can study it. I actually do think you can study it in the same, uh, using the same tools or in the same sort of article or research project of sustainable development or the green economy. It's one of those topics that has quite a lot of buy-in from a lot of elite actors and is pushed by a lot of elite actors. So at that level, I find it problematic because I think it ignores things like transitions, like what happens as you kind of take that line, which I don't think is really a line, but anyway, and kind of turn it into a circle. And a lot of that connects with what I know about the, say the displacement of waste pickers. I mean, no one necessarily wants to be doing that for generations, but it is like this kind of erasure of a way of life that has been central um, for many. yeah, and I, you know, it dictates a kind of clean, boring kind of world. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading. I probably read too much in a bit. People say a world without waste wouldn't that be wonderful? Like I say in the conclusion to the book, it's like no, 
<laughs> you know, I like the messiness, but you know, that, that's just me. But I do feel like it's often, it's often very much this sort of top-down framing, but that doesn't mean that components of it and the way it manifests on the ground are the same, um, you know, sort of local closed loops often are another way to talk about this. And that's really efforts to kind of improve, improve waste disposals. Like I think the food sector could quite easily be um, closed loop. And I think also uh, you can look, you know, if composting and all and sort of. So a closed loop is all output is used as input? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a circular economy tends to be used a little bit more sectorally or locally. Um, things like glass bottles to understand that they can be reused rather than just simply ground down if they're picked up or just thrown away. Um, so there's a lot of elements that are really important. Um, I just, you know, any of those big phrases, you know, ever since my entire life, really, I've been like, okay, well, who's, who's behind this? Who's backing it? You know, if you do dig down, like there's a famous report by um, the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, but it's actually, they're like author number three after um, the World Economic Forum and McKinsey. <laughs> Say, like, okay, something's going on here. It's not entirely grassroots activists, I can tell. <laughs> Yeah, I think sometimes like you hear like certain terms so much and kind of certain mm -hmm. ways you kind of get a bit. Oh, uh, so nice. yeah. There's a really interesting kind of elephant at the small scale sort of tech innovation sector, which is really looking for, you know, if, if someone could find the alternative to plastics and the way that we found the alternative to CFCs back in the day, that would be like a huge money maker. It's a bit of a holy grail and it would be kind of cool. So they're actually... Is there actually any effort in that? Yeah, yeah. Lots of people who are trying to figure it out. The, the problem is there's different kinds of plastics. So, uh, you know, styrofoam is one that's been a huge challenge. <laughs> Thermal plastics, that sort of thing. So, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think I took already quite a long time from you. Uh, oh, thanks. Yeah, 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 great, great discussion, and thanks for taking the time. Hopefully, hopefully, like I said, maybe we'll see you here someday and uh, invite you to. Yeah, watch do follow, do follow up with that. I'd love to. Mm -hmm. yeah, great, thanks a lot, Ben. I'll all send right. you the once we upload, once I upload the episode, I'll send you the link. And all that. Okay. Yes, that would be great. Yeah. Right. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Good luck with the project. Bye. And yes. Bye. 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 Have a nice day. Bye. You too.